Chapter 8 of Guy Fawkes, or A Complete History of the Gunpowder Treason, A.D. 1605. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Oxnard. Guy Fawkes, or A Complete History of the Gunpowder Treason, A.D. 1605, by Thomas Lathbury. Chapter 8. The Principles on which the Conspirators Acted In this chapter I purpose to give a short account of those principles on which the conspirators acted, and which were regarded by them as those of their church. I am ready to allow that many Roman Catholics deprecated the plot and the course taken by the conspirators, but still it is by no means easy to defend the Church of Rome from the guilt of the transaction since she then entertained principles which appeared to justify the attempt of the parties who were implicated in the treason. That the Jesuits were the life and soul of the conspiracy has already been shown in the narrative. They animated the conspirators when they were dispirited, warranted the proposed action when they were in doubt, and absolved them from its guilt after the discovery. Nay, they pronounced the deed to be meritorious, they swore them to secrecy and bound them together to the performance of the treason by means of the sacrament. The great wheels, therefore, by which the whole was set in motion were the Jesuits, but the arch-traitor was the Pope himself, who had sent his bulls into England to endeavour to prevent the accession of King James, for it has been shown that the treason originated in those bulls. I shall first briefly state the principles of the Church of Rome, on the question of heresy and heretical sovereigns, and secondly, examine their practices prior to and at the period in question to show how they corresponded exactly with the principles then publicly avowed and defended. It is an acknowledged principle of the Church of Rome that the decisions of general councils are binding on all. There are disputes amongst her divines respecting some of the councils, whether they were general or not, but concerning the decisions of those councils which have never been disputed, there is no question with Romanists. Now some of the undisputed councils enforce doctrines at variance with Scripture, and destructive, not merely of the welfare, but of the very existence of Protestant states and Protestant sovereigns, provided the Papal See is sufficiently powerful to carry out her principles into action. No king was completely master in his own dominions when the Papacy was at its height. The first council to which I refer the reader is the Third Council of Lateran, convened by Pope Alexander III, A.D. 1179. Its efforts were directed especially against the Albigenses and Waldenses, who were guilty of no crime except the unpardonable one of opposing the errors of the Church of Rome. Twenty-seven canons were framed by this council, all of them on matters of trivial importance, with the exception of the last, which is directed against the poor exiles who were bold enough to prefer their own salvation to a blind submission to the church. The 27th canon imposes a curse on all those who maintained or favoured the Waldensian opinions. In the event of dying in their alleged errors, they were not even to receive Christian burial. Footnote 24. Although ecclesiastical discipline, being content with the judgment of the priests, does not take sanguinary revenge, yet it is assisted by the decree of Catholic princes that men may often seek a saving remedy, through fear of corporal punishment. 
on this account we decree to subject them the heretics and their defenders to anathema and under pain of anathema we forbid that any receive them into his house or have any dealings with them nor let them receive burial among christians see the original lab at cross tom ten fifteen eighteen to fifteen nineteen the fourth council of lateran was held a d twelve fifteen one of its canons the third is even more horrible than the preceding all heretics are excommunicated and delivered over to the secular arm for punishment while temporal princes are enjoined to extirpate heresy by all means in their power footnote twenty five we excommunicate and condemn every heresy which exalteth itself against this holy and catholic faith let such persons when condemned be left to the secular powers to be punished in a fitting manner and let the secular powers be admonished and if need be compelled that they should set forth an oath that to the utmost of their power they will strive to exterminate all heretics who shall be denounced by the church but if any temporal lord shall neglect to cleanse his country of this heretical filth let him be bound by the chain of excommunication if he shall scorn to make satisfaction let it be signified to the supreme pontiff that he may declare his vassals to be absolved from their fidelity lab et cross tom eleven one four seven to one four nine this canon was also received into the canon law by gregory the ninth it was carried into effect against the albigenses this exterminating canon is still unrepealed and may be acted on whenever the church of rome may have the power to enforce it it has been attempted in modern times to deny the genuineness of the third canon but the attempt was unsuccessful it has also been pronounced obsolete it is undoubtedly inoperative simply because the church cannot carry it into execution but it is still the law of the roman church the council of constance a d fourteen fifteen decided that faith was not to be kept with heretics to the prejudice of the church and therefore john hus was committed to the flames in violation of the solemn promise of the emperor by these councils all heretics are devoted to destruction they proclaim principles exactly similar to those in which the conspirators acted in other words the conspirators acted on the principles promulgated by these councils as those of the church of rome on these principles did the jesuits justify the treason and declare the traitors innocent attempts are made in modern times to prove that the canons alluded to are not binding on the church but the hand of providence has made the church of rome set her seal to her own condemnation in this matter for by the decrees of the council of trent every papist is pledged to receive the decisions of all general councils footnote twenty six the holy synod decrees and commends that the holy canons and all general councils and also all constitutions of the apostolic see which have been made in favour of ecclesiastical persons and of ecclesiastical liberty and against the infringers of it all of which it revives by this present decree be exactly observed by all as they ought to be council of trent session twenty five de ref canon twenty it is observable too that emperors and kings are commanded to observe these canons this is surely a revival of the lateran canon the only question therefore to be decided is this namely whether these councils are regarded as general by the church of rome respecting the third and fourth lateran councils there never was any doubt and the creed of pope pius the fourth 
as well as the council of trent expressly enjoins the reception of the decrees of all general councils footnote twenty seven the creed is most explicit on this subject i do undoubtedly receive and profess all other things which have been delivered defined and declared by the sacred canons and ecumenical councils and especially by the holy synod of trent and all other things contrary thereto and all heresies condemned rejected and anathematized by the church i do likewise condemn reject and anathematize it is very remarkable nay i may say providential that the fourth lateran council is especially alluded to by the council of trent one of the decisions of this very council is specified and renewed by the trent decrees the church of rome has declared therefore by her last council a council too by which all her doctrines were unalterably fixed that the lateran council is to be received by all her members and as if to prevent all cavil on the subject and also to prevent any romanist from saying that this council was not a general one and consequently not binding on the church the council of trent has expressly designated it a general council and still further as if to remove all doubt on the subject the council of trent has particularly specified one of the lateran decrees by quoting the first two words the language of the council is remarkable all other decrees made by julius the third as also the constitution of pope innocent the third in a general council which commences qualite et quando which this holy synod renews shall be observed by all footnote twenty eight council of trent session twenty four chapter five it is therefore vain for any papers to pretend in the face of such authority that there is a doubt whether the lateran was a general council in all the editions of the councils it is so designated it is found in the list of councils appended to the editions of the canon law and in the canon law itself it is thus reckoned it is recognized by the council of constance and last though not least by the council of trent itself two things are here to be noted first the council held under innocent the third is expressly termed a general council and this council was the fourth lateran secondly a particular canon of the council is specified and renewed so that no doubt can possibly exist as to the particular council to which the reference is made it is not possible to establish any point with greater precision than this that the charge of holding persecuting and exterminating doctrines is fastened upon the church of rome by these decrees of the council of trent the reader will also perceive that the council of trent revives and confirms all the constitutions of the apostolic see that is all the determinations of the canon law it would be easy to justify persecution and death from innumerable portions of the canon law and how can any romanist allege that the canon law is not binding when it is expressly confirmed by the council of trent it includes all the bulls and decrees of the popes none of the persecuting decrees have been repealed and until the church of rome renounces them by a solemn and public act she will be obnoxious to the charge of maintaining the duty of persecuting heretics none of the laws respecting heresy have ever been relaxed no sovereign was ever censured for punishing heretics no council has ever relieved the papal sovereigns from the execution of the laws to which i have alluded nor was any one ever condemned by the head of the church for putting protestants to death until therefore rome repeals her exterminating decrees she must submit to the heavy charge of maintaining the right to persecute men for their religious belief 
it is well known that the bull in cena domini is read in the hearing of the pope every monday thursday by that bull all protestants are excommunicated and anathematized and will any one say that the church of rome would not execute the sentence of excommunication if she possessed the power to assert the contrary assuredly argues either great obstinacy or egregious folly to the bull in cena domini may be added the oath to the pope taken by every bishop on his elevation to the episcopal dignity by which he engages to persecute and attack heretics such are the principles of the romish church as embodied in her councils and her canon law if they are true then the gunpowder conspirators were justified in their proceedings nay they were acting a meritorious part in the prosecution of that design nor have the doctors and eminent supporters of that church hesitated to avow the same principles in days that are past though in modern times it has been attempted to deny them or explain them away how modern romanists can consistently deny that such doctrines are enjoined by their church appears to me inexplicable except on the jesuitical principle of equivocation which will enable them to pursue any course calculated to advance the interests of the apostolic see and though romanists generally repudiate such doctrines yet it is asserted in the theology of dens and taught at maynooth and doubtless in other similar institutions that heretics are the subjects of the church of rome footnote twenty nine dens two two eight eight reifenstuhl quotes the third canon of the fourth lateran no less than eighteen times in one chapter and he declares that impenitent heretics are to be put to death this work is a class book at maynooth a host of writers might be alleged who assert that it is lawful to punish heretics with death so numerous are the passages in romish authors on this topic and so well known that i abstain from any quotations still i will meet an objection not unfrequently alleged by romanists when pressed in an argument by the authority of names in high repute in their church namely that the church is not bound by the views of particular individuals the views of these individuals however are those of the church as i have already proved but further why are not these views censured if the church does not maintain them the church of rome has published an index prohibitorum in which all protestant works are included and an index expurgatorius in which many passages in the works of well-known romanists are marked for erasure as containing sentiment akin to those of the protestant churches as therefore the church of rome has not hesitated to expunge passages from the writings of her own members when she has deemed them at variance with her principles why if she views those portions of the works to which i allude and which enforce the persecution of heretics even to death to be erroneous does she not adopt the same process respecting them as she has not done so the undoubted inference is that these writings are not disapproved of by the church it is not possible for any romanist to object to this line of argument nor can it be charged with unfairness nearly allied to the punishment of heresy is the question of the pope's deposing power it is asserted in the canons already quoted and which cannot be disputed and it is also asserted by numerous writers whose works have never been censured in an index expurgatorius bellarmine says it is agreed upon amongst all that the pope may lawfully depose heretical princes and free their subjects from yielding obedience to them can it be denied therefore that such was the doctrine of the church of rome in the time of bellarmine 
and if such was the doctrine of that church then it must be the doctrine of the same church now since none of her articles of faith have been changed none of her doctrines have been repudiated it is true that the doctrine is not insisted on by modern romanists but what security have we that the claim would not be revived if the church of rome should ever possess sufficient power to enforce it we must therefore insist on charging these and similar doctrines on the church of rome until she renounces them by a solemn and public decision tillotson's observations on this question in his sermon on the fifth of november are so just that i shall make no apology for quoting them indeed this doctrine hath not been at all times alike frankly and openly avowed but it is undoubtedly theirs and hath frequently been put in execution though they have not thought it is so convenient at all times to make profession of it it is a certain kind of engine which is to be screwed up or let down as occasion serves and is commonly kept like goliah's sword in the sanctuary behind the ephod but yet so that the high priest can lend it out upon an extraordinary occasion and for practices consonant to these doctrines i shall go no further than the horrid and bloody design of this day it is singular that there is no express mention of the deposing power in the council of trent the pope and the fathers perceived that times were already altered that sovereigns were not likely to submit tamely to such an assumption of authority and that their proceedings must be managed with more craft than formerly still the deposing power was established by implication in the ratification of the decrees of the lateran council and we know that it was exercised at a subsequent period against queen elizabeth parsons declared in the reign of queen elizabeth that it was the doctrine of all learned men and agreeable to the apostolic injunctions and that the power of deposing kings has not only been claimed but acted upon may easily be proved it was not always treated as a speculative doctrine history shows that many wars have been waged through this very principle in some cases the papal sentence has been carried into effect and in others it has led to war and bloodshed some states having always been ready to attempt to carry the sentence into effect the following list will show how frequently the roman pontiffs in the days of their glory claimed and exercised the power of deposing sovereigns a d ten seventy five gregory the seventh deposed henry the fourth the emperor ten eighty eight urban the second deposed philip king of france eleven fifty four adrian the fourth deposed william king of sicily eleven ninety eight innocent the third deposed the emperor philip and king john of england twelve twenty seven gregory the ninth deposed the emperor frederick the second twelve forty two innocent the fourth deposed the emperor twelve sixty one urban the fourth deposed mumfred king of sicily twelve seventy seven nicholas the third deposed charles king of sicily twelve eighty one martin the fourth deposed peter of aragon twelve eighty four boniface the eighth deprived philip the fair footnote thirty this pope in his bull says we declare and pronounce it as necessary to salvation that all mankind be subject to the roman pontiff this bull is a part of the canon law thirteen o five clement v deposed the emperor henry v thirteen sixteen john the twenty second deprived the emperor lodovic fourteen o nine alexander v deposed the king of naples fifteen thirty eight paul the third deprived henry the eighth of england fifteen seventy 
Pius V deprived Queen Elizabeth, as did also some of his successors. This is a sample of papal attempts against kings, and it proves that the popes have always lost sight of St. Peter's character, though acting as his successors. Our own sovereigns have often felt the weight of the papal power. King Edward was enjoined by Dunstan, the abbot of Glastonbury, not to wear his crown for seven years, to which he was compelled to submit. Henry II was forced to walk barefooted three miles to visit Becket's shrine, and there to receive fourscore lashes from the monk on his bare back. King John was compelled to resign his crown to the Pope's legate, and take it back on condition of paying a yearly sum of a thousand marks to the Pope. The pages of history are pregnant with proofs that, from the period of the Reformation down to the time when the papacy became shorn of much of its strength, the practices of the Church have exactly corresponded with the principles asserted in the canons already specified, in the canon law, and in the works of their eminent writers. I have alluded to the bulls issued against Elizabeth, and to the attempted nations, and of individuals to enforce them. Elizabeth escaped, but several continental sovereigns fell a sacrifice to the fury of the Church of Rome. Henry III of France was murdered in 1589 by a Dominican friar, who was encouraged to the commission of the act by the prior of his convent. Henry was a member of the Church of Rome, but he was not so zealous as the Pope wished in executing the laws against heretics. On account, therefore, of his supposed want of zeal, he was devoted to destruction by the Church. The deed was lauded in sermons and in books throughout the French territories, while the murderer, who was destroyed on the spot, was deemed a martyr in the cause of the Church. At Rome, the fact was applauded by the Pope in a set speech to the cardinals. The act was contrasted by His Holiness with those of Eleazar and Judith, and the palm was given to the friar. Nay, it was compared in greatness to the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. I give the following extract from this most blasphemous speech. Considering seriously with myself and applying myself to these things which are now come to pass, I may use the words of the prophet Habakkuk, Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvellously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. Ebed 5. The French king is slain by the hands of a friar, for unto this it may be compared, though the prophet spake of our Lord's incarnation. This is a memorable and almost incredible thing, not accomplished without the particular providence of God. A friar has killed a king. That the king is dead is credible, but that he is killed in such a manner is hardly credible, even as we assert that Christ is born of a woman. But if we add of a virgin, then according to human reason we cannot assent to it. This great work is to be ascribed to a particular providence. In this strain did the head of the Roman Church laud the murder of Henry III of France. The deed was reckoned by His Holiness as glorious a work as the incarnation of the Saviour and His resurrection from the dead. Surely the principles and practices of the Church were in exact correspondence at that time. The principles have never been relinquished, and circumstances control the actions of the Church, so that she cannot kill and slay with impunity. Henry IV of France also fell a sacrifice to the same principles. He had been an advocate of Protestant doctrines, but from motives of human policy he united himself with the Church of Rome. Still, as he did not persecute his Protestant subjects, the sincerity of his conversion was called in question by the Church. In less than one month after his public profession of the papal faith, 
an attempt was made on his life by an assassin who had been encouraged by the reasonings of certain friars and jesuits after several escapes he was stabbed in the street by a man who had formerly been a monk his death was not celebrated publicly by the pope as was that of henry the third but the jesuits and the friars justified the act and proved that on the principle of the church it was lawful to put him to death though a romanist since he was not zealous against heresy and in the cause of the papal see king henry had also communicated secret information to cecil prior to the discovery of the gunpowder treason respecting the machinations of the jesuits and seminary priests the particulars of their treason were unknown but the very fact that the french monarch should convey intelligence to king james was a deadly crime in the eyes of the jesuits it was supposed at the time and nothing has since transpired to lead to a different conclusion that the party acted in communicating information to the english court hastened his tragical end i have remarked that the pope did not publicly applaud the act of the assassin but it is a fact that his memory was in consequence held in great veneration at rome for a considerable period after the event henry was supposed to be lukewarm in the cause and therefore it was determined to remove him out of the way the assassins of both these monarchs acknowledged that they were prompted to commit the murders by the instigation of two jesuits and the reading of the works of a third the massacre of saint bartholomew is too well known to need the recital of its horrid particulars i allude to it merely to show how the principles and practices of the church of rome correspond whenever she has the power to act the deed was applauded at rome by the head of the church the crime was consecrated by the pope who went in grand procession to church to return thanks to god for so great a blessing as the destruction of the heretics it appears that the tidings of the massacre reached rome on the sixth of september fifteen seventy two the consistory of cardinals was immediately assembled when the letter from the papal legate containing the particulars of the massacre was read it was immediately determined to repair to the church of st mark where their solemn thanks were offered up to god for this great blessing two days after the pope and cardinals went in procession to the church of minerva where the high mass was celebrated the pope also granted a jubilee to all christendom and one reason assigned was that they should thank god for the slaughter of the enemies of the church lately executed in france two days later the cardinal of lorraine headed another great procession of cardinals clergy and ambassadors to the chapel of st louis where he himself celebrated mass in the name of the king of france the cardinal thanked the pope and the cardinals for the aid they had afforded his majesty by their counsels and prayers of which he had experienced the happy effects on his own part and on the part of the church the pope sent a legate to thank the king for his zeal in the extirpation of the heretics and to beseech him to persevere in the great and holy work the legate in passing through france gave a plenary absolution to all who had been actors in the massacre on the evening of the day in which the news arrived at rome the guns were fired from the castle of st angelo and the same rejoicings were practised as were common on receiving the intelligence of an important victory the pope looked upon the massacre as one of the greatest felicities which could have happened at the beginning of his papacy in addition to these public rejoicings on the part of the pope and his cardinals at rome other means were adopted to indicate the sense of the church on the massacre medals were struck to commemorate the event on the one side was a representation of the slaughter 
an angel cutting down the heretics and on the other the head of the pope gregory the thirteenth on these medals was this inscription ugnotorum strages 1572 the slaughter was also deemed worthy of being commemorated on tapestry which was placed in the pope's chapel in the paintings which were executed the slaughter of the huguenots was depicted coligni et sociorum cades and in another part rex coligni sedum probat let it be remembered that the principles of the church of rome are unchanged and as the romanists themselves aver unchangeable the circumstances of europe are widely different from what they were in the sixteenth century and romanists themselves are under the restraint of wholesome laws and public opinion but were the popes of modern days to be supported by sovereigns like charles the ninth of france or were they possessed of the same power as was once enjoyed by their predecessors is it reasonable to suppose that the principles which are still retained would not be carried out into practice or that the same scenes which then disgraced the civilized world would not again be enacted in every country in which the jesuits and other active emissaries of the papacy could obtain a footing is it not clear from the preceding facts that the murderers of henry the third and fourth and the actors in the massacre of st bartholomew considered that they were acting a meritorious part they were taught that the pope could depose kings and grant their kingdoms to others and they knew that the pope had often exercised that power the gunpowder conspirators were men of the same class and influenced by the same views knowing that all heretics are annually excommunicated they believed that they were authorized to carry the sentence into effect and having been taught that heretical princes might lawfully be deposed they considered themselves at liberty to attempt their destruction the assassins of the french monarchs and the gunpowder traitors being encouraged by the authority of the church as explained by their spiritual directors entered upon their deeds of darkness with an assurance that they were merely obeying the commands of their ghostly fathers the pope endeavoured to clear himself from the guilt of being privy to the gunpowder treason yet some of the planners and contrivers of the plot were protected at rome had his holiness been sincere in his professions to king james he would have delivered up those jesuits who were implicated in the treason and who escaped to rome the surrender of the conspirators would have been the strongest proof of his sincerity but not only did he not give them up to the sovereign whose life they had sought he did not even call them to account for the part which they had taken in the conspiracy i would not charge the guilt of that conspiracy on the members of the church of rome indiscriminately for there were many who were horror-struck at the deed and there always have been many who did not receive all the principles maintained by the church but i contend that the head of the church the pope of that day approved of the act or he would never have adopted the course which he then pursued and in his guilt all the leading members of the conclave were also implicated we can only judge of men by their actions which if they mean anything certainly involved the church of rome of that period in the guilt of the treason garnet was regarded as a martyr not as a traitor and the absurd miracle of the straw was sanctioned at rome these facts certainly involve the then church of rome in the treason and as her principles are unchanged there would be no security against the same practices were circumstances to favour her ascendancy footnote thirty one hallam remarks there seems indeed some ground for suspicion that the nuncio at brussels was privy to the conspiracy though this ought not to be asserted as an historical fact const hist i five five four
it is also worthy of remark that the jesuits who were privy to the design and who escaped from the knife of the executioner never expressed the least remorse for the part they had taken on the contrary they never failed to speak of the treason as a glorious and meritorious deed when hall the jesuit alias oldcorn was reminded of the ill success of the treason as a proof that it was displeasing to god he immediately replied that the justice of the cause must not be determined by the event for that the eleven tribes were commanded by god himself to fight against benjamin and were twice overthrown and that lewis of france was conquered by the turks by reminding some of his dispirited companions of many glorious enterprises which had failed in the first instance he hoped to encourage them to persevere and to induce them to expect that god would in the end enable them to accomplish their purposes who can deny after these facts that the church of rome was deeply involved in the gunpowder treason or who can exculpate her even at present from the charge of maintaining principles subversive of christian liberty and protestant governments when one of the conspirators who was received by the governor of calais was condoled with on being banished his country he replied it is the least part of our grief that we are banished our native country this doth truly and heartily grieve us that we could not bring so generous and wholesome a design to perfection sir everard digby was a mild and amiable man and with the exception of his participation in the plot no stain rests upon his character yet he seems to have considered that by engaging in this treason he was really doing god service his letters written during his imprisonment and published by bishop barlow in sixteen seventy nine illustrate the influence of the principles of the church of rome on the mind of an otherwise excellent individual they were written with a juice of lemon or something of the same kind written too when he had time to reflect in his solitary cell yet it is evident that he thought he was advancing the cause of true religion in the part which he took and further that he was never convinced that the deed was sinful so completely had the jesuitical principles of the prime actors in the conspiracy warped his judgment and influenced his views the papers were discovered in the house of charles cornwallis esq who was the executor of sir kenelm digby the son and heir of sir everard they were once in the possession of archbishop tillotson as he testifies in one of his sermons the letters were by some secret means conveyed to his lady and were preserved in the family as sacred relics sir everard digby says archbishop tillotson in his sermon on the fifth of november whose very original papers and letters are now in my hands after he was in prison and knew he must suffer calls it the best cause and was extremely troubled to hear it censured by catholics and priests contrary to his expectations for a great sin the letters were also once in the possession of bishop burnet as he himself informs us from him we learn how they were discovered the family being ruined upon the death of sir kenham's son when the executors were looking out for writings to make out the title of the estates they were to sell they were directed by an old servant to a cupboard that was very artificially hid in which some papers lay that she had observed sir kenham was oft reading they looking into it found a velvet bag within which there were two other silk bags so carefully were those relics kept and there was within these a collection of all the letters that sir everard writ during his imprisonment a few extracts will show what his sentiments were concerning the plot now for my intention let me tell you that if i had thought there had been the least sin in the plot i would not have been of it for all the world and no other cause drew me to hazard my fortune and life 
but zeal to god's religion for my keeping it secret it was caused by certain belief that those which were best able to judge of the lawfulness of it had been acquainted with it and given way unto it now let me tell you what a grief it hath been to me to hear that so much condemned which i did believe would have been otherwise thought on by catholics oh how full of joy should i die if i could do anything for the cause which i love more than my life on the proceedings which were then to have been adopted in the event of the success of the plot sir everard remarks there was also a course taken to have given present notice to all princes and to associate them with an oath answerable to the league in france respecting the pope's concurrence he has the following passage before that i knew anything of the plot i did ask mr farmer what the meaning of the pope's brief was he told me that they were not meaning priests to undertake or procure stirs but yet they would not hinder any neither was it the pope's mind they should that should be undertaken for catholic good i did never utter thus much nor would not but to you and this answer with mr catesby's proceedings with him and me gave me absolute belief that the matter in general was approved though every particular was not known then alluding to the presence of some romanist peers at the opening of the parliament he adds i do not think there would have been three worth saving that should have been lost in another letter he observes i could give unanswerable reasons both for the good that this would have done for the catholic cause and my being from home but i think it now needless and for some respects unfit the last letter is a long one and is addressed to his sons but though he exhorts them to continue in the faith of the church of rome yet he does not express any sorrow for his crime nor does he caution them against being engaged in similar conspiracies it is therefore clear that he viewed the deed as laudable and meritorious even at the close of his career it appears certain that many of the romanists both at home and abroad were aware that some extensive conspiracy was on foot a particular prayer was used it is said by numbers in england for the success of the conspiracy it was couched in the following terms prosper lord their pains that labour in thy cause day and night let heresy vanish like smoke let the memory of it perish with a crack like the ruin and fall of a broken house it would appear that this prayer was framed by one who was privy to the conspiracy nor can it be doubted that it was intended to convey some intimation of the nature of the treason i am aware that no romanist would in the present day justify the deed but the preceding facts prove that the act was applauded and justified at the time by the whole church almost and for a considerable period afterwards to justify the treason now would be to expose the parties who did so to the execration of an indignant public the principles of rome however are exactly what they were when the bulls of the pope were sent to garnet and when the gunpowder treason was planned tillotson forcibly observes i would not be understood to charge every particular person who is or hath been in the roman communion with the guilt of those or the like practices but i must charge their doctrines and principles with them i must charge the heads of their church and the prevalent teaching and governing part of it who are usually the contrivers and abettors the executioners and applauders of these cursed designs footnote thirty two tillotson's works twelve m o volume i three four nine
it was decided by pope urban the second that it was neither treason nor murder to kill those who were excommunicated by the church so that any treason or murder could be justified on such principles nor has any change been effected in the principles of the church of rome popery says burnet cannot change its nature and cruelty and breach of faith to heretics are as necessary parts of that religion as transubstantiation and the pope's supremacy footnote thirty three burnet's eighteen papers eighty four andrew marvel wittily remarks of the pope's claim he has indeed of late been somewhat more retentive than formerly as to his faculty of disposing of kingdoms the thing not having succeeded well with him in some instances but he lays the same claim still continues the same inclinations and though velvet-headed hath the more itch to be pushing and however in order to any occasion he keeps himself in breath always by cursing one prince or other upon every monday thursday footnote thirty four the growth of popery page nine end of chapter eight